Now, on everyone's seats as you came in, you would have seen, hopefully, this little postcard here. If you pull it out right now, you might be wondering, what on earth is this? This is about a conference called NTE. Now, yeah, pretty good. If you enjoyed NYC in these last five days, even if you didn't, you should come to NTE. NTE stands for National Training Event. It takes place in December every year in Canberra, and it's for all the AFES, so groups like us, Christian university groups from all around Australia and even the world. And we all come to Canberra for five days similar to this, and we just dig into God's word. We do heaps of sort of training stuff. It's like this, but with way more people, and it's amazing. Uh, we're going to watch a quick promo video for it now. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. When God thunders, the waters are in turmoil and the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. Who is worthy of God's respect but the man who trembles at his words? For the word of the Lord is righteous and true. Through it, God accomplishes what he desires and achieves the purpose for which he sent it. All scripture is God-breathed. In the past, God's words were spoken through Moses and the prophets, scribed out as law. Because of this law, God's chosen people could experience life under God's perfect plan. Yet time and time again, they deafened themselves from the voice of their God. So the Lord declared, A deliverer shall come for Zion's sake, and the glory of the Lord shall appear. All flesh will see the salvation of our God. These words shall never fail, for the Lord of Lords has spoken. God's words became flesh and dwelt among us, so we might see the glory of the Lord, experiencing salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been brought into God's family, we're now entrusted with the very words of God. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. His words are alive and active. Hello everyone, my name is David if I haven't met you before and I have the pleasure of reading through Mark uh, now. Um, just as you're turning, I think it's helpful to know um, that Mark is uh, split up into two sections. Uh, the first half is all about asking, who is this Jesus? And at the end of it, uh, Peter uh, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. And then the second half is all about Jesus preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection. And we're starting at the second half, right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. So I'm going to start reading. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. And he called the crowd with his disciples 
and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thank you. I know it's not the natural position that most of us adopt when we pray, but I'm going to invite us to stand as we pray and as I lead us. Can you stand up with me? As we come before our great God. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this week we've enjoyed together. And now as we come to this final session, having heard your voice in Mark's gospel, we pray that you will penetrate our hearts with this voice from scripture. Please, so Father, keep us looking to Jesus Seeking to think and act as he did, as his people, so that we might bring glory to him as our focus, as our Lord, and as our Saviour. And Father, we pray this for his sake. Amen. Please grab a seat. Studying the cross of Christ this week has been a little like studying the Himalayas, the biggest mountain range in all the world. We've sought to engage Everest itself, namely the the centre of our theology. And en route, we've sought to look at a couple of peaks and crevices, but of course we can't engage every possible peak or explore every possible crevice because that would be glorious, breathtake, b- gloriously breathtaking, but it is utterly impossible to cover every aspect of it just in one week. And as I said at the beginning, it's only the tip of the iceberg, really. But it's our prayer that you have already seen glimpses of this glory that will so transform your life into the likeness of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And for some of you, perhaps... Come to know Jesus for the first time as your Lord, as number one of your life and as your saviour. We've studied the being and character of God, Father, Son and Spirit. We've seen the gravity of our sin and the judgment that is due to us. We've seen how God saves us by turning his anger aside from us and pouring it out 
upon his son who is the perfect representative and substitute for us. We've seen that the fundamental reality in heaven and earth is the love of God the Father for his son and that the reason why you and I and everything else exists is because God loves his son and wants others to know, love and glorify him too. And last night we saw the eternal security of justification by faith of what it means to live a life of faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. And so to ignore the cross of Christ would be equivalent to living in a chalet at the foot of Mount Everest and never bothering ever to gaze at the majestic mountain. And so we've just sought to have a glimpse of it this week. You see, it is... Never merely academic studying the cross of Christ. We may feel that our brains have died in the process, but it's never, ever merely academic, is it? It's never merely inspirational, is it? It really, really is a matter of life and death. Jesus said it in the very text that was read out for us, didn't he? The verse that's been quoted several times already before we've got there. In verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Please note, normal discipleship is a cross-shaped life. This is not radical discipleship that means that everybody must go to Gospel Zero Buddhist Asia, let alone Canberra. This is normal discipleship. It's not radical, it's normal. To take up our cross is to put oneself into the position of a condemned criminal on their way to execution. I mean, is that how we think about our lives? That we're on our way to execution. As one person put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. The person who said that was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who did die, was executed by Adolf Hitler, actually. His book, in which he quotes that, was a book, a biography of sorts, that Seth gave to me. Normal discipleship is a cross-shaped life. Now, as we've heard already, that in the flow of Mark's gospel, the first eight chapters reveal who Jesus is, and the last eight chapters reveal what Jesus came to do. And all the action in this chapter revolves around the Sea of Galilee. If you've ever seen the Mark drama, you know that the disciples hop into the boat and they keep on rowing all the time. You know that scene, if you've seen the Mark drama, well, that's happening here, right? They're rowing and rowing and going back and forth. Jesus has just fed a crowd of 4,000 people that followed him for three days. But then he hops into a boat in the Sea of Galilee, goes to the other side of the sea where he is tested by a group of Pharisees seeking a miraculous sign. And then he heals a man And it's a two-stage kind of miracle. Then he travels to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others just one of the prophets. 
And then Peter, Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He gets it. It's the climactic point in Mark's gospel. Finally, someone sees Jesus for who he is. That is until he says what he's going to do in verse 31. So look at verse 31 again, Mark chapter 8. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, for Peter not to recognize the cross as the center of Jesus' life and Jesus' message was in the end satanic. It came from the very flames of hell itself. Get behind me, Satan. He's not actually saying that Peter is Satan himself, but he's saying that Satan's thoughts are there expressed in Peter's very words. Everybody, including Peter, ultimately didn't see Jesus properly. And if that can happen to Peter, why, it can happen to us too, can't it? But when your eyes are fully opened, when you truly see who Jesus is, and when you truly understand that the cross is the center of his life, the cross is the center of his message, then and only then will you recognize what normal discipleship is, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus. But what does it mean, firstly, to deny yourself? Come with me again to verse 35 now. Verse 35 of Mark 8 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The operative word, I think, in verse 36 that is a challenge to us is the word gain. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? See, as disciples of Jesus, saved only by his blood shed on the cross, we are to deny what others seek to gain in this world. Otherwise, we forfeit our very soul. What is it that you want to gain? I'm told, I don't know how true this is, I'm told that one way to catch a monkey is to have a banana or whatever he enjoys inside a cage of some kind. Now, Jeanette and I actually got to see monkeys in a monkey kind of sanctuary. And they are amazing. They can swing everywhere and do everything. They are just free as anything. And they like their food. They really like their food. You just thrust, toss something over and they'll just go over to it. They just can climb. They can fly almost, you know, to various places. This, the, apparently, if you put, you know, a yummy banana and fruit and so on in, in a cage, like a bird, think of a bird cage, and he, the monkey will slip their hand through it and grab it. And then as he tries to get his hand out, it's a fist and it can't, Get out anymore, apparently. 
And so the monkey's stuck there with what he wants to gain. But the only way he can actually escape is by releasing what he wants to gain and get his hand through. But if he doesn't release it, he just wants to hang on to it and hang on to it. Well, he's trapped. Well, that's like us, isn't it? We can do this with anything in this world to the point where it becomes what we want to gain and we're so trapped by that gain and therefore we forfeit our lives, our souls. What could we possibly be holding onto in an effort to gain in this world? Well, the world keeps telling us the way we're going to gain is through a career, isn't it? Especially university students. It's a career. You've done all this hard work in your course. So if you don't live out what you've done, then in the end, you've lost, haven't you? And why do they call it a career? Because a career careers you forward, doesn't it? But if you think about it, a career can career into something that is not so good for you either. It's all about advancement. It's all about security. It's all about status. Oh, you are a whatever it is. You finish the line. And not only the world will tell you that, your family will tell you that. Not just your family, your Christian family will tell you that. What does Jesus say? What does it profit someone to gain the whole world? Gain it by way of status and security in your career, because your career, it's not a career. It's a job. It's a career if you find your security in that. It's a career if that's where you find your identity. It's a job that you can be loving in. Jobs are there to be exercised for the sake of love. Why is it that an engineer wants to build a really good bridge? Is it so that the bridge can be named after the engineer? Is it because you can say, wow, look at that? No, an engineer wants to build a good, a, a good bridge, I hope, is so that people don't get killed, right? that they can go over it and it won't collapse as it has done in other parts of the world. The, the reason why you want to do a good job is because of love, not because you get kudos out of it. Trouble is, the world tells you you want to get kudos out of it. Do you want high distinctions? Distinctions? Why? Why do you want them? Is it really because it means that you're going to be most loving in the situation or is it because it looks good on the CV? And people can tell you. Just for the sake of this point, I will share it with you. But I don't ordinarily share it because it's, it's, a, it's a nothing really. But just for the sake of this point, I want to say that I studied medicine when I went through university. And people constantly telling me, you're important. And lecturers would call you doctor before you became a doctor, just to make you feel good. And when someone calls you doctor, you can feel the, hmm, <laughs> I'm a doctor. Because what's a doctor? Someone who saves lives. You know... Who saves most lives in the world, physically? Engineers. 
who provide clean running water. Clean running water is what saves lives around the world. Teachers do a great job in teaching people. But you see the, the academia, oh, you've got to be a doctor. And, and if you're an Asian doctor, by goodness, you've made it in Asia. You are the, the ant's pants, right? Now, I'm saying this in part to pick on myself, but I'm really picking on all of you, every single one of you, whatever your choice is. That's just one area where we're going to find our gain. What about our marriage options, let alone our travel options? or What, what is it we're going to gain in this world? It's this security. If, it, if it's not the job or the, the career as the, as the world wants us, you know, in, in, at the ANU, uh, that's been voted to be the best university in all of Australia for the last five or six years or something like that. The, the lecturers tell them they are the thought leaders of the world. Can you imagine that? Thought leaders. That makes you feel good, doesn't it? But all it's going to do is trap you like a monkey. The world keeps on saying, gain, gain, gain. See, even the disciples face that. If you come to chapter 10, verse 32, verse chapter 10, verse 32, the disciples are facing it. But Jesus, he keeps on saying the same thing, right? Jesus foretells his death now for the third time. And he says in verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, the disciples, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's what it's going to happen. He tells his disciples for the third time. You think the message would sink in, but look what James and John do in verse 35. What did they do? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine that? They wanted Jesus to give them whatever they wanted. What would you think of someone asking you to give them whatever they wanted? Someone came up to you, you know, please, please, Sam, give me whatever I ask you. Piano skills like you do. Now, you know, uh, give me whatever, you know, a flat in Kiraville because it's the glory of Wollongong. <laughs> give it to me now. And yet Jesus answers kindly, doesn't he? Verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. They want the best seats in glory, sitting at the right hand of Jesus, the left hand of Jesus. They want to sit next to the most successful person. So for them, it's a career option, yeah? Disciple one and disciple two. That's the best career you could get next to the most successful person on the planet, sitting right next to them. 
you know, where you sit really matters, doesn't it? And the, and the reputation of the world. And it's, it's still today, isn't it? You guys are in marriage country because you're going to go to weddings. You watch. You're all Hands up if you've not been to a wedding yet. Okay. You can come to another one. I'll invite you to another one. But we're all going to get to weddings one day or another. When you go to a wedding, you get seated if you go to a reception. Where do you get seated? Well, it depends on how important you are, doesn't it? If you're close to the bridal party, you'll sit somewhere close to the bridal party. If you're like me, you'll have to sit back somewhere and get binoculars to look at the wedding table. Don't I think, where are they? Kind of thing. Yeah, but where you're seated really tells you how important you are. The closer you are to the people of influence, the more important you are. That's why they're the seats of honour, so to speak. You know, yeah, yeah, there's wedding receptions. Do you ever feel that? Have you ever entertained the possible thought, even here at this conference, thinking, oh, so-and-so sitting with Rob, or so-and-so sitting with Jeanette? They're people of influence. Oh, I wonder what they're talking about. They're, they're important people, aren't they? Didn't you felt that? Did you ever entertain the thought of it? You know, Scott Morrison came here for whatever reason, and, and who does he talk to? Kind of, oh, I wonder who's going to talk to Scott Morrison. What about if Justin Bieber came? Whoa, Whoa yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or whoever, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you think of Justin Bieber. But anyhow, you get the drift, isn't it? It's whoever you sit next to. Uh, but the world is full of James and Johnses, aren't they? People who seek prestige status through their career or through who they sit next to or who they hang out with, are people of influence, glory, people who in one way or another, want to gain the whole world. And the disciples just still haven't learnt their lesson. That was two chapters before, right? James and John still haven't got it. In one sense, a desire for gain is to, well, be thought well of. I mean, let's be honest. We all want this for ourselves, don't we? We want to be thought well of in social media. How many followers we have, how many more likes we have on our posts, how many more positive comments about our photos or our selfies or our posts, or how many people say happy birthday on my social media posts. That's the thing that makes me successful. That's how I gain in this world. That's how I'm seen to be gaining in this world. And everybody knows that. Facebook knows that. They know that every time there's a like, dopamine goes bing, and another one bing, and more dopamine, dopamine, dopamine that gets you feeling really good about it because I've got a like and more likes. And how many times my video has been viewed, that gives me success. That gives me gain, doesn't it? Or it's word of mouth or it's reputation. But for James and John, this selfish ambition is also reflected in a desire for power. Right, remember, to sit at Jesus' right and left hand wasn't a seat on the floor or stools, but thrones of power. And so they love the thought of power. That's why Jesus says in verse 42, chapter 10, verse 42, when you go there, it says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So they recognize deep down inside, they, they want power. They want Positions of influence. But what is it that gives us power? What is it that gives us influence? Well, for us, it's that reputation. Sitting with the cool kids, whoever the cool kids are. But it's a desire for comfort and security as well, isn't it? 
That's why they so easily say in verse 38, verse 38, Jesus said to them, chapter 10, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. I'll actually come back to verse uh, 36. Oh, sorry, no, no, 38, sorry. When, when he asked, you know, sit at your right and left hand, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptize, uh, baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When Jesus says they have to drink the cup that, they, that he drinks and be baptized with the baptism that he is baptized with, they're probably thinking that this was the luxury of successful people. That's why they say very quickly, oh, we're able. We're able to do that. Of course we are, because you're going to get a nice drink, aren't you? nice wine, and you're going to be baptized well. It'll be lovely. It'll be, uh, probably be a spa kind of baptism, won't it? There'll be bubbles everywhere. We'll go in in our cozy kind of, cozy kind of swimmers, whatever they are, board shorts, your luxury kind of swimmers, and I'll go in, drink some bubble water there with the bubble bath and get all bubbled everywhere, and that's all bubbly comfort and security with luxury, with people of influence, and who else will be there? All these grand and grand people, then Moses will be there, Elijah will be there, and I'll be there. Wouldn't it be cool? But they have no idea what it involves to be baptized with the baptism that Jesus has or drink the cup that he drinks. And just before we look at what that actually means, did you see how the other 10 disciples responded? Look at verse 41. Verse 41. When the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. We don't use the word indignant much, do you? But if you look it up in a dictionary, the word indignant means they were spewing. That's what it means. They were spewing at the thought. They were cheesed off at the thought. Why? Not because they thought James and John were being naughty. Rather, it's because they were jealous that James and John got in first. Like them, they wanted success. They wanted to gain the whole world by, way, by sitting at the right and left hand of Jesus. They wanted power. They wanted comfort. They wanted security. And that's what we want too, isn't it? Security. Security in a job or more a career. Because we want our family and friends to think well of us. And I tell you, when, when you have four young adult children like I do, I get it. I pray constantly together with Jeanette for each of our family members. We do it daily, actually. I'm constantly praying. Uh, one of my daughters is in northern Iraq at the moment with uh, some friends in ministry. And I'm praying for her safety and her security. And I keep on catching myself because I'm praying for her security first before I'm praying for her growing in godliness and Christ-likeness. I'm praying that they won't suffer, but <laughs> Jesus keeps on telling me that we're going to suffer. So I should be praying, please use the suffering they go through to grow them like Jesus. Instead, I pray for them not to suffer. I want them to be secure in some sense in terms of housing and finances and marriage and the like. 
I get it. And you'll get it too. But I've got to keep on repenting and recognizing that my security is in Christ and not in my location, my job, my career, what my family thinks of me, what my friends think of me. For Jesus, success involves service to the point of death. To drink the cup that Jesus drank, to be baptized with the baptism he was baptized with, meant to experience what he experiences. And for Jesus, it was verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die the death that we deserve. He came to take upon himself all the anger of God upon himself. He came to serve. The disciples were to die, but not like Jesus, because Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, please notice that this passage, which highlights the desire of James and John to gain the whole world, is sandwiched between the two passages regarding Jesus' death. Right In verses 32 to 35, it's all about Jesus prophesying his death, suffering and resurrection. And verse 45, it's got to do with him giving his life as a ransom for many. Sandwiched in between is James and John's desire for power. You couldn't get more contrast than that, can you? Here is gain for the whole world. And Jesus saying, no, if you try and gain the whole world, you will forfeit your soul. So don't try and save your life. Lose your life for Jesus. Now, James and John did later understand all of this. They did end up denying themselves and taking up their cross to follow Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, we learn that King Herod had James killed by the sword. In Revelation chapter 1, we know that John was exiled on the island of Patmos. They did drink the cup that Jesus drank. They were baptized with the baptism he was baptized with through their suffering and death. That's all well and good for the disciples. What does denying yourself mean for us then? I thought it meant you know, maybe just denying ourselves chocolate every now and again or denying ourselves anything I like generally for a time or you know, fasting for just for a little bit, not, not going on Netflix for a month or something like that. That's denying myself. You know, some people in the ascetic movement used to deny themselves anything pleasurable. There were a group of monks who used to go up on a pillar and have nothing in terms of pleasurable things. And they would sit there and just meditate. And they would do everything up there. So people had to go up there and give them food and they had to bring their, well, shall we say, their waste back down again. And pillar monks were up there for 30, 40 years. That's what they thought they were denying themselves. It's unbelievable, isn't it? But I think it means something rather different. To deny yourself in the context is to deny yourself of anything that stands in the way of God's cross-shaped purposes. To deny yourself anything that stands in the way of God's cross-shaped purposes. For Jesus, it meant being perfected through his suffering obedience in the face of all real temptation on his way to the cross. For Peter, it meant accepting that the Christ must suffer, die and rise again. 
For Paul, it meant denying his rights to marriage and money for the sake of proclaiming the cross. For us, it will mean resisting any gain that gets in the way of a cross-shaped life, whatever it is. It doesn't mean denying every pleasure. And who can deny dark chocolate, for starters? But it does mean killing ungodly pleasures with the greatest pleasure of living for Jesus. That's what it means, doesn't it? I mean, for goodness sake, we've just shared with you, Jeanette and I are going on a cruise. That's not exactly denying pleasure, is it? But will we cruise in a cross-shaped way? That would be a good thing to pray for. Come back to chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. And calling the crowd, of him, the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to, him, to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What will a cross-shaped, gospel-shaped life look like? Don Carson once put it this way. It is to live as if it is better to die than to lie. Better to die than to lack self-control. Better to die than to gossip. Better to die than to be short-tempered because I am tired Better to die than to have sex outside of marriage and go too far or no far. Well, far enough to know that we've been displeasing to God. Better to die than to be addicted to pornography. Better to die than to be unfaithful. Better to die than to try and selfishly gain the whole world. It is better to die than that. That's what it means to take up our cross. As John Stott put it in that book, The Cross of Christ... The place of suffering in service and of passion in mission is hardly ever taught today, but the greatest single secret of, of evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is a willingness to suffer and die. It may be death to popularity or to pride or to racial and national prejudice or to material comfort, but a servant must suffer if he is to bring light to the nations. See, suffering is normal. The gospel we preach will be a gospel that involves suffering, not prosperity. Following Jesus means seeing him properly, denying yourself, taking your cross, following him as those eternally secure in him because he went to the cross. And so for the sake of time, I just want to finish with four questions as we finish. Four questions. Firstly, do you trust only in the death of Jesus to save you from your sins? Do you trust only in the death of Jesus to save you from your sins? It may be that 
even today, you know you're not actually living with Jesus as number one of your life. I know you've spent a whole week with us studying the Bible, but maybe he's not yet Lord because you have not trusted in God's beloved Son alone to save you. You're still trusting in something that you do to save you as well as the death of Jesus to save you. But that's not the way to be saved. That is actually Roman Catholic doctrine. I'm not talking of people, doctrine. You look up Vatican II website, you will see that you are saved by the, by the death of Jesus and what you do. But I hope if there's one thing that you've learnt this week from the Bible is that you're only saved by what Jesus has done and not what you've done at all. It's only by what Jesus has done. Do you put your trust only in the death of Jesus to save you? Because if you haven't turned to Jesus yet, you know what is going to happen to you if you die before you turn to him and to face the wrath of God. So please turn to Jesus. Talk to one of us about that before you leave. First question, do you trust only in the death of Jesus to save you? Second question, if you do trust you only in the death of Jesus to save you, if Jesus really is number one of your life, are you done with sin? You're done with it. You know those things that are not pleasurable to Jesus. You know that you are in Christ, and therefore it's anomaly to live a life that is not pleasing to him. Then are you done with it? Have you said, I'm going to say no, I'm going to put it to death. I've resolved now. I'm not going to go too far with my girlfriend or boyfriend. I've resolved now. I've resolved now to break it off with the non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend if I'm a Christian. I've resolved to do that. I'm resolved to not think of my course as a career option, but rather think of it as a job in which I can serve and love. I'm resolved not to try to gain the whole world. I'm res- Are you done with sin? I've resolved to stop looking at pornography. Do you trust in Jesus alone to save you? Are you done with sin? Thirdly, third question. Will you plan your life with cross-shaped priorities? Will you plan your life with cross-shaped priorities? You're at university now. How will you live a cross-shaped life, a cross-shaped prioritized life at university? Well, you've got your uni timetable for starters, don't you? Now, why at university? Well, God has put you there. And yes, you're there because you're in a course. Can I say first and foremost that you ought to treat university like you were going to treat a job later on? And I need to speak to two groups of people, depending on who you are and what abilities that you have. We heard Jono speak last night. He wished that he had studied half the time and drank more. Remember that? If you didn't hear that, that's what he said. Right. And the reason Jono can say that is because he's got the kind of brain that he does. And he started a particular degree that he loves, right? And he can do that. And if that's you, 
and you don't need to get high distinctions, and you can do that, and you can spend more time with unbelieving friends. That's a wonderful thing. But I need to speak to others of us who don't have the kind of brain that Jono has, and we find it a little harder, and we kind of need to work harder in order to just pass. And it's so easy to be lazy and not do it and, and not be faithful and not turn up to lectures or tutes or anything. What kind of witness is it if we say we go to university and we just don't turn up to any tutes and we fail all the time? We say, oh, I'm here for a uni Bible group. I'm going to get the uni Bible group degree and I don't really care about... Well, that's not a good witness either, is it? So depending on who you are, okay? Do you hear what I'm saying? Jono is absolutely right for Jono and anybody who has Jono's kind of brain. But if you've got my kind of brain and I just had to work hard in order to just pass, then you need to be responsible. Right? You hear what I'm saying? But at the same time, I'm not saying you've got to get high distinctions because high distinctions will glorify God. In fact, I remember someone saying that to me. You glorify God by getting a high distinction, by being excellent. Well, that's not true. You glorify God by being faithful and loving. What's loving to the lecturer, loving to the tutor? tutorial leader, loving to your classmates. What's the loving thing to do? That's the question. Not that I get high distinctions. So that's the first thing I want to say. But secondly, having said all that, on the assumption that you're seeking to be responsible because that's what is a godly thing to do, then why not plan your uni timetable in a way that you can milk everything you can in terms of training? You've been enrolling in tutes all week, haven't you? trying to get there and fortunately for you the electricity was not out before then because otherwise you'd be all over the place wouldn't you so what do you try and do here's my guess you try and cram everything into one or two days so that you can get a long weekend all the time is that what you do so i'm going to try and get it so that i can pack everything in so that i can have three or four days for a, what do you want to do in that three or four days so that i can work more what do you want to work more? Get more money. Why do I want to get more money? For the overseas trip. For the presents I want to buy for the wedding and for the fashion that I need to buy for the CD collection. No, you don't do CDs. You online Spotify stuff. You know, for the what, so that I have more time surfing, so that I can spend more time. Why not have cross-shaped priorities and you think, well, okay, I'm going to get a tute, and that's all I'm going to get, that one hour on that one day. Well, I'll come in for that tute, and I'll spend the rest of the time going to team and going to gongversations at 11.30 every day. I'll go to the prayer pods. I'll, I'll learn much, and I'll, I'll see what I can do to do, get involved in gospel buddies and, and share with the people who come from those countries which are unreached and unengaged. Wouldn't that be a great way to plan your timetable? If you've got the luxury of time and if you missed out and that's all you've got, well, use the day well. See, that's, that's thinking about it now, isn't it? If you do that now, that'll help you shape what you do in the rest of life. When you graduate from uni, let me tell you, if you start getting a job and you've got a job that's you know, high income and high disposable income initially, what are you going to do with that? Oh, I'll buy a car, buy the suits that come with that or whatever you know, kind of gear for that and then I'll make sure that all that's secure and then I'll think, oh, then I'll look for a church that might be nearby, but that you know, doesn't really matter because my priority is getting the, the job established. Then I'll work out what it is that's from there. When cross-shaped 
priorities in terms of timetable is, is the exact opposite, isn't it? Where is the ministry I can serve in? And then I work out all the rest that suits the ministry. That's what Seth and Kate are doing. Yeah? They've decided to go to Gospel Zero Buddha say we, we saw something of that. And then they worked out everything else around that. Their whole family life is around that. That's taking up your cross to follow Jesus. That's denying yourself, isn't it? These questions are only getting harder, aren't they? Are you trusting in Jesus' death alone to save you? Are you done with sin? Will you plan your life with cross-shaped priorities in terms of uni timetable alike? And finally, will you live your life and die your death for Jesus' sake and his gospel in full-time ministry? Now, the question I'm asking has got to do with willingness. Will you consider that? I'm not saying that you must go into it, but are you willing to do that? I'm just asking about the willingness. We talked about character and convictions and competencies, and, and those things might actually say that you may not be such a person who should be in full-time ministry. But the question is, are you willing because that's the litmus test of whether you're denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Are you willing? That's the question that Jeanette and I had to ask regarding Canberra. Were we willing to even consider it, let alone take the step that we took? And it was a hard thing to consider, willingness. For Jeanette, it's, she's been involved in so many of your lives for these last five years, and so many of you are willing to consider doing more training with her. Do you see what she... Are we willing, was she willing to do that? That's, that's been very hard. For me, it's been 25 years in this particular house that my first wife died in. It's our family home. Where are our adult children going to come back to on holidays? Where is home for them? I spoke to each one of them as we talked about relocating. And I said, that's going to be hard. But they know that heaven is their true home. And they said, you go with our full support, even though we know it's going to be hard. And it's going to be hard. The culture's not the same as this at the moment. And to be perfectly honest with you, it's the needs in recognising that the staff team in Wollongong alone is larger than the entire staff team across all the campuses in Canberra. For a long time, they've not had MTSs. For a long, long time, for the best part of a decade, they've been so severely understaffed. It's just not right, is it? I don't want to leave. Jeanette doesn't want to leave. But we're willing to. And all I'm asking is, are you willing And one way to seriously canvas the willingness is to come to our challenge morning in August that you'll hear more about to actually hear a guy named Ray Gilea speak about what it might mean to work in vocational full-time ministry. And then there's a particular conference called MTS Mission Minded where you can actually think through those things. There's nothing wrong with just checking it out, is it? <laughs> willingness is the key. But the first steps are go back to uni, 
be faithful in your studies, faithful, I'm not talking about age, just faithful, responsible, and taking up all the opportunities that are there right now, next week. And when we leave this place, we're going to feel like, wow, I've learned so much. I've been so challenged. And some of you, for some of you, it's the, it is really been the top of Everest. It's been a wonderful time. I've heard so much about God. I'm learning so much about Him. I've made so these rich relations. I can't wait to go back because I'm going to cry for 24 hours because I'm going to miss my friends for 24 hours. So we'll have a box of Kleenex there for you to cry and as you embrace and say goodbye. But then things are going to feel really good because you're going to go to a petrol station and then everyone's going to be there and then there'll be a Maccas around and everyone's going to be there. And even, even the attendants behind the Maccas station will know your name. You're going, how do you know my name? It's because you forgot to take your name tag off. So make sure you take your name tag off and put it on the way out. And it's going to feel wonderful, and then you're going to go back, and then you're going to, just for a day, you're going to be, oh, gee, it's so sad, I'm not there. So some of you, it's a high, but some of you, it's a bit of a low, because it's going to be like, oh, everybody else had a good time. I, I don't know what the mix of feelings are. But here's the cross-shaped life. And it's normal. And it all begins with trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's trusting him. He, he's got your back. He's your security. Remember, the, even the perfect spouse will let you down. You know why? Even if they don't sin, they will let you down if you stay alive longer than them because they might pass away. And if you can't continue going, then therefore you've treated your perfect spouse as the saviour rather than Jesus as your saviour. So who is your saviour? It's Jesus, isn't it? He's got you. If he's your security, what have you got to lose in living for him? It's all about grace. Don't hear, this is not a guilt trip. It's about doing what is the most logical thing in all the world. To love and serve the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So let's joyfully live for him by his grace. For his glory. Eternally secure in him. Let's pray. We thank you, dear Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. That he is at your right hand. That he has poured out his spirit upon us. That we are now in him, if we have trusted him as our Lord and Savior. And we pray, Father, that secure in him, eternally secured in him, that we will deny ourselves gladly, take up our cross gladly to follow him with every breath that we take for the rest of our lives on earth until we die or until he comes back again, whichever is first. And we pray that we will do so for his glory.
whatever it takes. Amen. Thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, it, the question Richard just gave to us is very challenging, but worth to think about it. How about let's spend a couple more minutes to reflect on those questions. After this, Tia is going to lead us in prayer. Let us pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, you who are slow to anger, compassionate, and yet full of justice, we praise you for all that you have been teaching us this week. It is truly amazing how you have graciously revealed yourself to us in the word which we have been pouring over and seeking to understand. And we confess that we have failed to understand the fullness of your glorious righteousness and mercy, which is, has the power to give us life from death. We are sorry for our sins, Lord, and help us forsake the gains of this world 
lest we forfeit our souls. Yet you are faithful to gift us grace if we trust in the sacrifice of Jesus alone and not in what we do. So let us give our life for your son Jesus' sake. And so, as this is the last day of this week you have blessed us with and the hardworking people behind it, let us continue in assurance of salvation and living out the fruits of our justification. We ask that you humble us by the things you have convicted us of, reminded and showed us. Lord, help us to take these things home with us, that we may be living with the cross of Christ as central to our everyday life. We also ask for opportunities where we can share what we have learnt with those around us, whether they are Christian or not. And that these people may be encouraged and convicted by the power of your spirit through the word, just as we were. And as we turn our attention and time to the coming uni semester, we ask that you continue to guide us to be part of your church, becoming more and more like your son in the opportunities that we have to do so. We pray for Jesus week, that the preparation and execution of these would go well. And we pray for your spirit to be at work in the hearts of those whom we talk to. And generally for us to live a lifestyle of evangelism this semester for the sake of your gospel, reaching every nation, tribe and tongue. Lord, keep us safe as we drive, humble as we love and others and ever willing to learn from your infinite wisdom. Let your son be glorified as we honor you in all that we do, eternally secure in him. In Jesus' name, amen.